don't know the word Scott? Welcome to America, friend. Learn music. Welcome to another episode of the Rudy Librarian Podcast. I am your host, the Rudy Librarian himself, Brian. Yay! All right, so welcome to the Rudy Librarian, and I am super excited to be here today um, uh, with uh, one of the one of the guys, one of the bands that kind of introduced me to ska back in the 90s. Uh, and so I'm here today with Joe Yerke from The Insiders, uh, yeah. some Detroit Motor City ska. That's right. So, Thank you so much for being here today, man. How you doing? I'm hanging in, man. Thanks for having me. I, I appreciate the uh, the invite. I, I couldn't very well talk about my relationship with ska without talking about the three, the big three Christian ska bands that introduced me to ska, which were Five Iron Frenzy, you guys, and the Supertones. Uh, yeah. And so I'm super thankful for that. And what's so cool about those three bands is y'all are all very different from one another. Correct. Uh, so... You know, we we didn't have well. I say we we didn't have a ton of ska bands. We didn't have a ton of like big, huge ska bands in the Christian scene. Um, but the three that we did have were very different from one another. So uh, it's pretty cool, man. Yeah, for sure. It. Uh, yeah, we. I think just geography just made things different. Like, um, I know here in the Midwest, when we first started out. The ska bands in, in like Detroit and like the Michigan kind of Midwest scene, we would play with like punk bands and like hardcore bands all the time. Like everyone, it all went together like peanut butter, jelly and bacon. It was like it was just like three groups that were completely different. Like if you looked at them, you know, from from the, the fashion. But as far as like the kid underneath the fashion, everything went together. And then it was it was commonplace to have like a ska band open and then like a hardcore band and then like a punk band like headline that was very 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 common in the scene here and it wasn't until we started like making our way west that we saw that that changed it was like we would get into you know we would get into the west west and uh you know um you know like starting to get towards denver and those places and it was more it seemed like it was more like punk and ska together and then by the time we got to California, it seemed like just ska bands. So when you went to a ska show, you went, you saw three ska bands and it was very, the, the, the scene was very like rude girl, rude boy. Like the skanking was almost like they had taken lessons. I mean, the skanking was unbelievable on the West coast going to, like when we toured with like Skeletones or seeing like Skeletones or Jeffrey's Fan Club or the Israelites, the people dancing, I mean, it was it was beautiful. Like just watching like the women dance, and it was just so ladylike and just so amazing watching them and the guys were right there. And it was, it was like the, it was almost like they took ballroom dancing lessons, but for skanking. Whereas in the Midwest, it was like mosh pits. You know, like Scott shows like kids would skank, but it was like skanking mixed with, you know, hardcore, you know, just mosh pits, throwing fists, all that stuff. So it was it was quite different. And I think you see that in each of the bands. Um, maybe not what it sounds like on our CDs, you know, like our 
the insiders i our cds i don't think until soundtrack to a revolution really captured our sound um so like at least live we were a lot harder and like more aggressive and then you had five iron which was definitely more like punky and then became like more rocky and then you had the supertones which kind of just kind of started out you know they started out like good clean ska and then they kind of went more like you know ccm ska type type music yeah so so tell me how you got into ska like how did you get exposed to ska and what were some of the first bands that you got into yeah my story um i've told it a billion times but i i love telling it and it was my uh sophomore year in high school i was a jock i was a jock in my high school played soccer did all that stuff uh, just a just a decent kid. I came home from school and uh, ESPN two used to have a show that came on at you know it was either three o'clock or three thirty, and all it was was like skateboarding, surfing, like kind of like back then what would be considered like extreme sports, and it would be to music, and so I would come home and I would watch it, and one day I I turn it on. And it's um, like a surfing video, but the music that we was behind it was the Mighty Mighty Boss Tone Someday, I suppose, off the Don't Know How to Party album. And that when that song kicks in, it's like the way it starts out, the horn line, bum, 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 bum. And then the bass drops in. I mean, from the get, I heard that. That whole line played through once and I was hooked. And so whatever food I was eating, you know, when I came home from school, I set it down. I grabbed a pad of paper because if you remember back then, well, how old are you? I'm 39. Okay. I'm 44. So like music video, I mean, people listen, they might not know now, but like, you know, music videos when it came on down in the lower left hand corner used to say like the artist, the song, what album it was off of. So I went and grabbed like a pad of paper and a pen because I was not going to miss like who this band is. And so uh, the song ended. I wrote it all down and, and I didn't their name. The Mighty Mighty Boss Tones was so weird. I didn't really get it all, but I kind of got the other stuff someday, I suppose. It was a snowstorm that night. I drove up to Blockbuster Music and uh, went in and there was like some punk kid working there. And a horrible snowstorm. I was like 16 years old, you know, just got my license, almost died in the snowstorm going there. And just as a kid, I'm like, I think it's a, you know, he's like, do you need help with something? I was like, yeah, I think it's a band called the Mighty Mighty Boston's. He's like, yeah, it's right over here. Goes, gets me the cassette tape. And I was hooked. Like on the ride home, I popped it in the, in the tape deck. And I was absolutely hooked because for the first time in my life, like being a jock, like all I listened to was what was like spoon fed to me on the radio. I knew nothing about like an underground music scene. I thought what was on the radio was what like those were the bands that people went and listened to. And so listening to the mighty, mighty boss tones and hearing Dickie Barrett's vocals, I was like, Oh my gosh, like this is a guy who sounds like me when I sing, because I always thought like I was a crappy singer. Like I, I never thought like I could sing I wasn't in any school choirs. I wasn't in a church choir because when I sang, it sounded like Dickie Barrett. Like it had that gravelly, raspy. And so I was like, man, I don't sound like Whitney Houston. I don't sound like Michael Bolton. So I'm not a singer. And then to hear Dickie 
just gargling gravel. I was like, dude, I can do this. Like, this is me. So that's what got me hooked. It wasn't until a year later that I met who would become our drummer, uh, Nate Shogren, who me and him started the insiders. And I met him and he was an underground, like music kid. He was in a hardcore band, all this stuff. And I met him and we started talking music. And the only ace I had to play other than like what was on the radio is I had this tape of this underground band that nobody knew of. And so I was like, yeah, well, if you ever heard of a band called the, you know, the Mighty Mighty Boston, he's like, heck yeah, I got this album, that album, this album. So I went over to his house after school one day and he just started playing me all these different ska bands. He like introduced me. He's like, yeah, they're called, they're a ska band. No clue what the, what the word was. I didn't even know how to classify them as far as like what style. So Nate taught me all that. And then Nate turned me on to like other ska bands and things like that. So that's how I got into ska. And I can, like, I can honestly say that was my sophomore year of high school. I can honestly say that I could probably count on two hands. I'm 44 years old now, so that I was probably four. Well, no, I was 16 years old because I went to, in that snowstorm. I drove in it. So, I mean, in what what would that be? From age 16 to age 44, probably I can count on two hands The how many times I, I went a day without listening to ska. It just... It grabbed me. It was something within me that just, that's it, man. It, it's, it's the greatest style of music that's, that's ever been played, I think. So, so how did the Michigan ska scene differ from like, you know, New York and Orange County ska scenes? I think kind of like what I, like how I was saying earlier, like the crowds and, and who you played with kind of made it different. I know the East Coast, you know, the East Coast was a lot more like, I don't want to say two-tone because that that's what was like on the West Coast. I think of like East Coast ska bands and I think of, you know, I think of the boss tones. But they were almost like an enigma, you know, because then you had like the pie tasters, you had the toasters, the stubborn all-stars, the slackers. Uh, you know, you had bands like that that were all these like brilliant musicians. And I think that's what, to me, like separates ska from like other genres, like you have great musicians in other genres. Don't get me wrong. But like in the punk scene, you get like three buddies like, hey, you play bass. I'll play guitar. You play drums. And you kind of just like rip through three chord songs. But when you're when you play ska, I mean, there's bands that have like keys. And I mean, you can't hide a bad piano player. And in ska, you need a good bass player. You can't hide a bad bass player with all the walks and stuff that you do in ska. You know, if if you got a guitar player that can't play that upstroke, that can't play like a reggae stroke, that's going to show. And then if you have crummy horn players, <laughs> you know, that's going to show. So to me, I think it, it really takes a good musician. Um, I guess now that I think about it more, I would kind of say that the the East Coast at that time, like when, when I was in that scene, you know, in, in the 90s, I would have to say I would think the East Coast was more like two-tone, and then the West Coast was more – they had two-tone bands, but the West Coast kind of went like more fun ska. You know, you had the like real big fish. You had the voodoo glow skulls. You had these bands that like dressed up and were like high energy and made it um, – like really made it like a, like a fun show, whereas on the East Coast, it was more the suit tie um, – just 
phenomenal, like two-tone. And then, like I said, the Midwest, we were just kind of like a mix of all these influences and hardcore and punk, but with the ska and, and all that stuff. So that's kind of where I see those differing. So how did the insiders come together? You've mentioned a little bit about you and, 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 Nate. and, and Nate. Yeah. How did, how, did, how did the rest of the band form? So once we all kind of started talking and, and realized that we had this interest in music, the short answer was we started a band for our high school talent show. And so we played a couple songs. We didn't play ska songs. We played like metal songs. We, we played prong, snap your finger, snap your neck. And we played Sadama Gogo by Guar. And, uh, but it was through that, that like, we kind of put these pieces together and when it was done, we were kind of like, man, that was a lot of fun. We should keep it going. And so Nate and I, because of this love for ska, we were like, Let, let's do a ska band. Like nobody else is doing ska. We had no clue that there was like, at this point, we had no clue that there was like a Christian scene. We didn't know that there was like a ska scene, anything like that. And so we decided to like put it together and we had all the pieces like at our fingertips, like all our friends, like whether it was church or just close friends, we had, we had people that played all those instruments. So it was, it was really, really easy putting the band together. And I think by default, like as we, we put all the pieces together, you know, we got our bass player, we got our guitar player, we got our horn players. I think by default, I just became the singer. So I've never, like, I've never taken vocal lessons. I've never been in choir and stuff like that. So I think that's where that showed as the insiders put album after album out. You hear my voice grow from album to album because I didn't have years of, you know, I, I wasn't in choir in junior high and kind of learned where my range was. It was just learning on the fly. So kind of with each album we did, I kind of got better, I guess you could say, like use, use air quotes. I got better at singing. Um, yeah, and then I think it wasn't until about Soundtrack to a Revolution that we had a producer, uh, Royce Nunley, who played uh, bass for the Suicide Machines. He produced Soundtrack for us, and he was like the first guy that I like asked him a question, and I was like, how should I sing this? And he's like, what are you asking me for? He's like, it's your band. Like, you sing it how you sing it. He's like, all I do is hit record. And so that was like, a, a breath of fresh air because all our albums previously, you know, the producer would hear me sing and it was that Dickie Barrett syndrome. They'd be like, you can't sing, man. Like you gotta do it this way. You gotta do it that way. So there's like three or four albums that I can listen to that. I'm like, that's not my voice. You know, that's me just trying to knock it yelled at by a producer, not being told to like do it again. So that's, um, that's kind of how the insider started. So I mentioned this at the beginning, but you guys were a part of what many people in the Christian scene refer to as like the big three Christian ska bands. What do you think led to you three being the most recognized? Were there other Christian ska bands that you thought deserved some recognition and didn't really get it? Yeah, I think I think we were just lucky being like at the beginning of that wave, you know, so wherever you were in the country, we were kind of the east part of the country five arm was kind of the middle of the country and then supertones were the west side and i think just by happenstance we were you know we were the first ones in line we were the first ones up and so we kind of got the recognition and we kind of got out there and then others that came along you know one 
once you kind of have those like big three or whatever, I don't know how many people were clamoring for more ska. Like I think the Christian scene were like, okay, we kind of found our, our bands and, and they just kind of rode with that. Um, I mean, I think, I still don't think squad five Oh gets the, gets their, their, you know, gets their due when squad five Oh, their first few albums where they were like operation Ivy, like there's some great, great Scott, maybe not horns, but just that, that op Ivy sound. I wish they would have stuck with that throughout their career. Like they, I, I, man, I loved when they were like that. Another band that I always thought was a lot of fun. Uh, they were out of Canada and they played a few shows with us and they were, they were called fun with fat kids. And they were just like a good fun like group of like high school kids or, you know, like early college kids that, that were playing, that were playing Scott. And like I said, they opened for us a few times and they were just, I just remember like laughing and like kind of singing some of their songs and they covered, like they did a Scott cover of like Amy Grant's, um, uh, like thy word, thy word is a lamp into my feet. And it's great. Like to this day, I still sing that song, their style. And so, um, yeah, there were, but like I said earlier, like Scott isn't in. Here's the thing. I think maybe your question boiled down is again. I'm gonna refer back to Scott isn't like an a easy. It's not like an easy style of music to just throw people together. So I think the Supertones had established themselves and they were playing, and then the wave hit. Like Five Iron was a ska band when the wave hit we were a ska band when the wave hit. And so then I think when the wave actually hits and people are like, Hey, let's jump on this. And they're trying to throw a band together. That's where you're like, Oh, well, you know, my little brother's best friend plays trumpet. You know, well, your little, your little brother's best friend might not be any good at trumpet. He might play it, but it doesn't mean he's good. And that's what I think happened is a lot of these bands, started popping up all over the country because the pieces were there, but it doesn't mean the pieces were good. And, and I'll go to the grave. I'll go to the grave in my opinion, saying that ska bands are the best musicians on the planet and you can't hide it. Like I said, you can't hide a bad, bad horn player. You can't hide a bad bass player when you're playing ska. Like I play bass. I enjoy playing bass. Like I'll play it like church band or I'll play it like for fun. There's no way I could be, I could be in a good ska band. I'm not that good. Like you got to be good at all those instruments. And um, yeah, so that that's why I think more didn't come out. Like that's why I kind of think it started with us. And then I just think the musicianship between those three bands was kind of what separated us from everybody else. And th there were a lot of other Christian ska bands and some were good and some weren't, but like, uh, a lot of them, I think, didn't really they like they maybe played concerts, but maybe they didn't record. But I know, like, I remember there was an album that was called Skanktified. That yeah. was like it was like twenty or thirty ska bands. Yeah, and definitely on that there were like lots of tracks that I was like, eh, skip. And then there were yeah. some tracks that I was like, oh, this one's good. Yeah, there there was another band from Southern California called Big Dog Small Fence, and they're awesome, and they do have some uh, recorded stuff. And if you can listen to their uh, their song, I believe it's a cover. Um, 
uh, it's like Roll Jordan Roll, one of the greatest ska songs, like two tone to like listen to, especially like in the Christian genre. But Roll Roll Jordan Roll, uh, oh, those guys were good. But yeah, I th- I think that might be it. Like you're talking about too. You you know you got guys who kind of get together to be in a ska band, but at the same time, like you got kids going to college and you got dudes working jobs and not every band commits to the whole, like we're going to be a band and we're going to tour and we're going to be on a label. Cause back then it was labels, right? So you had to work your butt off to be on a label. And you know, that that's probably another reason why, you know, bands didn't get as big because they were just, you know, they were committed to like, Hey, we'll play when the insiders come through town. You know, we'll open for the insiders and they're fantastic bands, but, you know, they got they got their their goals were bigger. Like they wanted to be engineers. Right. They played they played trumpet in their like college marching band, but like they were going to be an engineer. So they didn't want to sit there and tour. So I I had the privilege of getting to see you guys in concert a a number of times, a couple of which were at a a club in Bedford called God's Place International or GPI. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I I remember one of my f- favorite stories, one of the stories that I shared with people about you guys is uh, I often would volunteer to work security at GPI, which I was in like middle school, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. uh, but the guy who ran it would let middle school kids and high school kids volunteer to help out and they got in for free. You know, kids, kids who yeah. didn't have a lot of money, they could get into the shows for free. And uh, so I was at one of those shows and, uh, you know, I, because I was there working, I got the opportunity to kind of hang out with the bands and talk to the bands and stuff a little bit. And I remember one of, one of the things just to kind of talk about, uh, you know, your character or whatever, you, you know, I, uh, I was talking to you at your merch table about all the, uh, the CDs you guys had, and you had a couple like little sort of EP things that I didn't know existed. Like, okay. Re- really, there was one. It was like brass knuckles and baseball bats. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So uh, I was like, man, I've never seen this before. I've got everything you guys ever put out, and this is awesome. And uh, you reached over and grabbed that CD and just gave it to me and go, there you go, now you got it. Oh, and wow. uh, And so I remember that, like, being like, that's super cool, especially because I, like, at the time, you know, I, I grew up in a single-parent household. My mom was struggling to make ends meet. Uh, and the, and the, the, the scene was like, it was all I had, you know, I was really into music and, uh, and so the interactions that I got to have with some of the bands and then, you know, when bands would do things like that, you know, it just made me feel really like valued as a person. So I, I you know, I got to throw that out there and say, thank you, you know, for, oh, for those right. memories. Oh, that, that's great. I thank you for saying that. Cause at age 44, I don't feel like a nice guy anymore. So it's, it's, it's nice to have my tires pumped and uh, let me know that I did at least one nice thing in this world. <laughs> I think the older you get, it's okay to be uh, maybe not mean, but like a, a little, a little bit more of a, a curmudgeon. You know, I'm looking forward to my curmudgeon years, you know, oh, I'm full in, I'm, I'm, I'm all in. <laughs> okay. So you've talked about this a little bit. So for me, my interaction with you was primarily through the Christian rock scene. So I saw you guys at God's Place International when it was in Arlington. I think you played with like maybe it was either Miss Angie or Morella's Forest and Plank Eye. Yes. Uh, 
and I can't remember was it, which one of those bands, but I, we we actually toured with both. Like uh, Morales Forest was on it for a while, and then they left, and then Miss Angie came on, or vice versa, one of them. And and those are like crazy diverse concerts because, like you said, there's not a lot of Christian. There weren't a ton of Christian ska bands, so those bands are nothing like you guys were. And then um, and then I saw you again. Uh, you know, when, when God's Place International moved to Bedford, uh, you guys played there. And um, and so did you guys primarily play those Christian shows or did you play more mainstream shows? And what did you feel like was the difference between those two scenes? And like when you played, like did you primarily play um, Christian shows in certain regions or was it kind of just all over the place? Yeah, this this is like where the questions like get real and and like you really start to get into the weeds of things and and sometimes the answers aren't nice and flowery like you know we want them to be. And so when the when the insider started, like our mission was we wanted to bring we wanted to bring the light to the dark places. And so we wanted to be a Christian band that people respected um you know, you didn't you didn't have to agree with us with our lyrics, but we wanted you to like respect our music, and hopefully by respecting our music and and who we are as people, we could have those conversations, and you know, just through relationship, uh, change hearts and and open minds to what you know to to hope and peace and the gospel. So when we first started, we had no idea that there was a Christian scene, so the insiders started. And we played, um, we played clubs, you know, we would jump on with mustard plug. Um, you know, the big bands here in Detroit were, were mustard plug, gangster fun, the parka Kings, uh, the exceptions. Th- these were like amazing bands in Detroit. And we would like play with these guys. And, and that's all we knew. Nate, our drummer, he would just sit there every week, every day, calling people, you know, that was landlines back then, just calling club after club after club, just hounding, hounding, hounding the, you know, the promoter to let us open for these bands. And that's what, that's what he did. And finally these people would just give in and let us play. So as we got bigger and bigger and kind of developed a following, a Christian club opened uh, not far from our house, uh, probably about 40 minutes, half hour, 40 minutes from our house. And it was called the fringe. And that place started bringing in bands. The first concert I ever saw there was Plank Eye and Seven Day Jesus. And then, I, I actually, I take that back. It was Strong Arm and Zayo. They played. And then the next one was Plank Eye and Seven Day Jesus. And suddenly kids like started coming. And then Nate talked to Tony Weatherly, who ran it, got us on the bill. And then we were like, oh, cool. There's this Christian club that the bands that this guy's bringing in are other Christian bands. So then we started to figure out all oh, they like, there's this like little Christian niche, like there's this Christian scene, but we didn't know it was that like all across the country. I mean, we're like 17, 18 year old kids. And so then at that point we knew that when we played the fringe, we were, we were playing for a, a like Christian crowd, but most of our clubs, we were still playing at, Pharaoh's Golden Cup and Mosquito Lounge and the Majestic Theater and and the Palladium and all these like normal clubs around Detroit. 
Well, then as we started getting bigger and word spread, and I'm guessing like maybe bands that we would play with would tell other promoters. Then all of a sudden we started like fielding calls from, you know, like a Christian club in Milwaukee. Like there was one called the lighthouse. So we would go play there and then uh, we would play um, like heart and soul cafe in Chicago. That was like another Christian club. And so suddenly we started finding out that there were all these like, like little Christian clubs. And that was cool. We were, like I said, 18 years old, wide eyed, and you just want to get out of your hometown and you want to travel and you want to play. So that's what we did. So we went around and, you know, we would play wherever we could. So if we played a mainstream show, we'd play mainstream. If we played a, a Christian show, we'd play a Christian show. And then as we got bigger and bigger and bigger, the like club shows got put on hold. And this is where like, this is where the like not fun talk comes in. So like what happens is like as you start getting bigger and bigger, you have more costs. So you got to buy shirts and you got to buy better equipment and you got to buy a better vehicle. And as you're getting bigger, you can no longer kind of book your own stuff. So like maybe you get a booking agent, maybe you get a manager. Well, now you have to pay them and their prices go up. So now your price is a band like instead of 500 for the insiders, you know, now it's 1200 for the insiders because you have to pay these other things. And suddenly it goes from like being fun. And when the insider started, we kind of outlined, we never put anything down in, in, in writing, but we kind of outlined things and just said, you know, we're going to, we're going to call this quits when things, when it becomes a business, when it's no longer fun and it's a business, we're going to call it quits. And so as we got bigger and bigger, like it was, it was still kind of fun because everything was new and everything was fresh and, and it was just cool. But then after like a, you know, your second tour, your third tour, you're starting to realize that like all you're doing is playing churches and like Christian clubs and the, the mainstream shows you wouldn't play anymore because you could play, you know, five days a week at churches and weekday shows you could make a thousand dollars, you know, $1,500 on a Monday night show for like a youth group in like the middle of Kansas. You, there's no way you could do that. Like at a mainstream show, like mainstream show, you're, you're, they might, they might guarantee you like a hundred bucks or 50 bucks. And then you get $2 a head, you know, for whoever comes in, you know, something like that. And you're basically playing for your merch. So when we started getting bigger and then like guys start getting married or guys start having kids, suddenly you can't do that club tour. Like you can't do what your mission started off to take that light to dark places because you have to book the $10,000 show playing the acquire the fire, you know, missions, con you know, conference, or you got to take the $8,000 show playing for this big, you know, Christian thing or this big mega church because you needed that money to, to pay your managers, to pay your, you know, your, your merch fees, all that stuff. And then to actually get a decent paycheck every month. So that's where things like get really adult very quick. So you start off as a band of the most least adult kids, right? I mean, mature, uh, adulty type kids don't say we're going to start a band and tour. 
Like you go to college and you become teachers and engineers and doctors. That's what smart kids do. But then you have like us and you have like punk kids who just decide this group of friends are going to go play music and hopefully we get paid. <laughs> and, and then you get to that point where you are making money and other people's mortgages depend on you making that money. And suddenly you can't take that club show. You know, you can't go and play with the Parker Kings or, or Mustard Plug in Grand Rapids for $200 because that's a night that you could be playing for $4,000 at the church down the road. And so unfortunately, that's what happens. And by the time you, by the time that taste in your mouth is so soured and, and at that point, like you don't care about money anymore. You, you care about like your creativity and your, your artistic work and you, you, your integrity. It's too late. And so at that point, you like look at each other and you're like, you know what? Like seven years ago, we said that when this became a business, you know, uh, we would stop doing it. And so by that point, like the, the ska scene had like crashed. It had become a fad. You know, the mozzarella stick memes were like alive and kick in. And, you know, you went from literally January 1st, you were playing for 2000 kids to February 1st, you're playing for 50. And like the sky wave just crashed like immediately. And so like the writing was on the wall. It wasn't worth, you know, being away from family, being all that stuff to, to play for 15 kids or to, you know, 15 kids are showing up at the show, but the promoter still has to come up with, you know, eight grand to pay you. Where, where's he going to come up with that? So it just got to the point where it was so overwhelming that, you know, that, that, that's kind of how, that's kind of like how all that stuff goes is it's just, it just gets to that point where it, it just doesn't work anymore. Yeah. That's tough, man. Especially, you know, you love doing it and then you kind of, it becomes something that you maybe don't love as much anymore. And then it becomes something that's not sustainable anymore. And that's, a, that's kind of a bummer. Yeah. Yeah. When you, when you, when you turn your back on your own, like kind of vision and mission statement for a paycheck, you know, I mean, that's, that's the definition of a sellout and you don't, you don't want to be that. So when, when that's staring you in the face, it's, it's time to call it a day. So nowadays you do a couple of podcasts You've yeah. got the, the Average Jerks podcast yeah. and pick, Pickle and Boot Shop Diabolical Brainwashing Machine. Yes. Uh, so tell me a little bit about your two podcasts there. So um, there's a big radio station in Detroit uh, called 89X. It's out of Canada. And my uh, my best friend growing up, he was, he was the best man at my wedding. Uh, he's, he was the morning DJ for 89X. And so... Uh, basically what they did is 89X let go of all their American employees. And so unfortunately he got axed. So he started, while he was looking for another radio job, he started doing this podcast. And it was the Cal Cagno Radio Podcast. And he had his same co-hosts that were on the morning shows and and as they found jobs or whatever, uh, they would leave. So one day he was like, hey, will you be on this show with me? Well, me and him, we've been best friends since we were kids. Our, like The dynamic between the two of us is, is really good. And so I had a blast. Like I just became his co-host on this radio 
on this, you know, his radio show podcast. So that's where like I got into it. He got tired of it and was like, you know what, I'm, I'm going to stop doing this. So about a year and a half ago, maybe it's maybe even been two years by now. He was like, Joe, I'm, I'm going to retire from this. And he started a whole new job, went in a complete different direction, got out of radio. Well, I was just having too much fun doing it. I was like, man, po- like podcasting is fun. I'm not in a band anymore. But this is like kind of similar to being in a band. And, you know, you, you're trying to get your name out there. You're trying to get people familiar with like what you do. You, you want people to rely on like, hey, you know, this band's putting out an, an album. And I like the band, so I know the album's going to be good. So you want people to be like, hey, you know, th- this is a good podcast. I want, I, I can't wait for the next one. So, so Cal retired and I was like, well, I want to keep this going. So I had kind of been pitching him ideas like, Hey, I think we should change the show and do it like this. Well, he ended up stopping. So I had this idea. I wanted to do a podcast that just kind of dealt with Michigan. Like it didn't bother me. I wasn't trying to get like national plays or people all over the world to listen to it. I wanted to be a niche podcast for Michigan and if it just got big local, I wanted people to be able to know that they could go onto this podcast and what was being talked about was stuff in the state of Michigan, like cool places to travel to, vacation destinations, places to eat, um, you know, our local sports team, almost like a like a morning show, like a morning radio show, but in podcast form. And just talk about Michigan. That was it. And so um, a friend of mine at work talked it over with him. He's like, yeah, you know, I, I do it with you. And so we, we did it for a while and then he had a baby and then moved about 40 minutes away. So things became real tough for me and him to, to meet on a, on the regular. So I kind of had to find ways to fill it. And so I would try and get business owners, uh, try and interview business owners. When I couldn't get an interview with a business owner, I, went back to all my old connections and friends. So I would call Leonor from five iron. Hey, you want to be on my podcast? You know, I call Reese. You want to be on the podcast? So I kind of filled it with that. Dre, my, my co-host was able to come back. And then also just recently we had another, we we've, we had another co-host come onto the show. Her name's Kathleen. We call her Leany. And so now it's me, Dre and Leany kind of do this average jerks podcast. And, and it's just, it's local, it's funny, it's stories, it's rants, um, just kind of that morning show type feel. And that's what our average jerks, uh, podcast is now while I was doing that, like I had said, I interviewed Reese. And so one night I, you know, I text him. I'm like, Hey, would you, would you want to do my podcast and, and, and interview? He's like, yeah, absolutely. So we get in or we get on and we start recording it. And I just asked for like an hour of his time. And at the hour mark, he's like, I don't want to stop. I want to keep going. So I'm like, all right. So then we went two hours at the end of the two hours. I'm like, all right, Reese, I'm, you know, I've taken up two hours of your time. He's like, I want to keep going. So we went another hour. So me and Reese, just as friends, just caught up via like the Skype that was being recorded over three hours. So I, I, you know, edited it up and threw it on the average jerks and it went nuts. And like the, the listens that we had for that, that episode, like those two episodes, cause I broke it into two, like hour and a half episodes. 
the amount of listens just eclipsed what we normally had. So I texted him and told him that. And I was, I just threw it out. I was like, you know what? We should do a podcast. And he immediately jumped at it. He was like, yeah, I'm in, man. I'll do it. And so we were trying to think of a name for it. And, and so the idea that I pitched to him was, how about me and you do this podcast? But everybody has a podcast. So we're not going to call it a podcast. We're going to call it a diabolical brainwashing machine. And so we were trying to think of like a name, trying to come up with something. Well, back when me and him were touring, everybody, because the ska, the ska wave was starting to crash, the writing was on the wall. So everybody was like starting side projects. And so Reese had a billion side projects too. And I didn't. And so I said, hey, me and you should start a side project, but be totally punk. And our side project should actually be like a business, like a store. And we would always joke, like, what are the two things that people want? People want boots and they want pickles, you know, just being stupid. And so we were like, yeah, we'll call it the pickle and boot shop. So whenever me and Reese would see each other at festivals or on tour, at spot dates, whatever, we would always bring up the pickle and boot shop. Hey, when are we going to open it? When are we going to buy the building? You know, when are we going to start doing this thing? And so... It hit me one night when we were trying to think of like a name for the podcast. I was like, dude, we've been talking for 20 years about having the pickle and boot shop. And so I, I was like, how about we call it that? He's like, absolutely. So it's Joe and Reese's pickle and boot shop, a diabolical brainwashing machine. And so we started doing it. And the kind of the, the premise for it is every week we try and take a different aspect of band life. So whether it's, whether it's touring, whether it's backstage, whether it's green rooms, whether it's the, the vehicle that you use, songwriting, we try, and, we try and focus on one aspect each week. Now, mind you, because Reese is Reese and I'm me, we might start on one topic and then it'll just go in a completely different direction and, and hundreds of different stories, usually all dealing with poop or, or pee. <laughs> or puke. So that's, that's just kind of like the fun thing that we do and, and we love doing it. And it, the listens, I mean, are fantastic. So people seem to like it. So we're just going to keep doing it and see how long we can, we can ride this wave too. Yeah. And it is, uh, so I've definitely been enjoying it. Uh, and it, but it is definitely not, you know, for the faint of heart, you've shared some stories about um, kind of like you were talking about, you know, uh, stomach illnesses and using chip bags to uh, yeah. go to the bathroom and yeah, uh, you can say it poo poo pee pee. Yeah. 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 So, uh, uh, there's, there's a lot of like, you know, uh, stories like that, uh, that are pretty funny. <laughs> uh, but you know, if you, if you're not prepared for it, you might be like, Oh, what, what am I listening to? Yeah. The uh, problem is that is what tour is. Like people think people think touring is, like what they have in their head is the stories that they've heard of like Van Halen or Aerosmith where you like go to a city and you stay at like some amazing hotel and you, you eat great food. The, the, you know, what actually happens is you pull in and you eat pizza eight days a week or you have spaghetti, like ragu spaghetti eight days a week. And that just like hits your stomach and you go to different cities. If you drink the water from different cities, they have different fluoride, chlorine levels. The, all the different water all across the country is different. So 
the tap water that you drink in Detroit is different than the tap water in Dallas. And so it'll make you sick. And so when we as a band like first started, we were like, we're not going to be punk rock. We're not going to be like ask for bottled water and do all that stuff. Well, I tell you what, you do one tour where you have pitchers of tap water and paper cups on stage. And after you've had diarrhea for six weeks, you you realize, oh, there's a reason people put bottled water on a rider, you know, because then you're just you just know every night you get Aquafina, you're good to go. But uh, yeah, that that is what touring is for 99% of the bands is horrible stomach issues, digestive issues, and some sort of poop story once a week. Well, and the stories are are, are definitely entertaining. I, I I know I was the the episode that you're we're we're talking about a little bit. You were talking about uh, one of your guys get, having like you know stomach issues and and having to go on the bus in a chip bag. And uh, yeah. I, yeah, we didn't let him off the bus. I was like crying, laughing, which I don't know what that <laughs> says about me, my sense of humor. Uh, but I had to, uh, f- you know, uh, send a message to one of my good friends and tell him, like, you got to listen to this, man. It's ridiculous. It's so funny. Oh, so. good. Good. So what what should we expect in coming episodes here? Oh, uh, we got a bunch of stuff planned. We're going to continue our beef with the Supertones. Um you know, we're going to keep poking that bear, see if we can, you know, bring the, the CCM machine down upon us and see if we can take the punch. Um, we're going to, we're, you know, we vowed to end Satanism by 2023. And so, uh, we're, you know, we're looking, we're looking to, to take the devil down a few pegs. Um, and I don't know. We're we're looking to we're, we're looking to get a sponsor. You know, uh, you know, just just all that stuff. Any anything we can try. Anything we can try. Um, we tried to get uh, Trojan condoms to sponsor the show, so we thought it would be funny to be a you know kind of a Christian nostalgia podcast. And you know, Trojan condoms presents Joe and Reese's pickle and boot shop. Um, Trojan told us that. Uh, uh, their influencer budget was already taken for 2021, but uh, they they definitely want to talk to us for 2022. So I think that'll be, I think that'll be funny, um, you know, just stuff like that. We don't take ourselves serious, and at the same time, uh, I man, I want people to know like what happened in the 90s. Like I want people to know the struggles. I want I want people to know that like what we did didn't separate us from anybody. Like. The term rock star is just so stupid. Like I'm sitting here behind a computer, just like anybody else, just talking in a microphone, just like anybody else. Um, you know? And so I think this medium that we have now in podcasting and social media to be able to just interact with your fans and, and you know, I'm, there's no more rock star anymore here. Like I work a nine to five job. I'm a, I'm a father of two kids and, you know, I enjoy chicken wings and, and cooking and, you know, all that stuff. So it's awesome to be able to interact with like all our old fans and new fans that we're getting. Um, yeah. So I just, I just love the medium and to be able to kind of right the wrongs back when I was on the, in, in the insiders, one of the big things I did is I loved the attention. Like I loved the attention of being the lead singer of the insiders, but my default personality is when I know that I love the attention, I have to overplay that I don't 
like it. So I end up coming off as like not appreciative when actually that's just like a defense mechanism for my own ego. And so I, I wasn't like the greatest with fans. So now I have the ability to hopefully write that wrong by being in podcasting and, you know, conversing with fans over, over Instagram, over Facebook, over our website, you know, all that stuff. So that's what I enjoy doing. That's, that's why I like this medium. I don't even know if I answered the question. Yeah, I think you did. And I, and, and, and I can say that you were good. You were good to me as a fan. So I appreciate that. Oh, good. So, so one of the things that I try to do in every episode, and I say that, you know, somewhat tongue in cheek, since this is only the second episode, uh, but is I try to give uh, my guests an opportunity to pay the love forward. You know, basically to talk about a ska band that that you love. Like if if you were going to call out a ska band and say this is you know where it's at, uh, who 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 would you who would you share that love with? Um, I would go with an old school from Detroit. They're called the Parka Kings, like Parka as in like P A R K A. They're called the Parka Kings. Their album is Twenty Three Skidoo, and that is that was just my my growing up years, like that 19, 20 years old dating my wife, um, you know, and we just, that CD just went nonstop, nonstop, nonstop in the player. I absolutely loved it. Um, as far as somebody newer that you could probably go out and get the album, Parker Kings, you're going to have to hunt for it, but it's worth the hunt. Um, but the album that I always love to plug is Ethan Luck who Ethan, you know, played drums and guitar for pretty much every band ever in the Christian music scene. But Ethan Luck put out an album last year called Let It Burn, uh, and it was his ska album. Um, so he's been in all these other bands, and over the years he's written all this ska stuff, and he did it himself. Like, I think he plays every instrument on the album. He sings. And so I was able to get the vinyl through, uh, like, his Kickstarter but you can find the vinyl online. You can order it, I think, from him. But Ethan Luck, Let It Burn, is a phenomenal album from the first song to the last song. Right on. So the other thing that we always do on this podcast, because we are the Rudy Librarian, and I, uh, you know, the whole Rudy Librarian stems from the fact that I am uh, working to become a librarian. I just finished my degree to be a, a, a librarian, a school librarian specifically. So okay. we got we got we got to hit books. We got to talk about books. Let's do it. So uh, are are you a big reader? And and if so or if not what what, what do you tend to read? Here here's the thing with me. I am a big read like I binge read. So I'll go I'll go a year without reading anything. Well, not comic book. Like I read comic books, but like I'll go like over a year without reading like a book book and then within three months I'll pound like, you know, I'll do like a book a week and just absorb, absorb, absorb. And then I'm done for, you know, months and months and months. So I'm a binge reader. Um, yeah, I like, I enjoy comic books, uh, all sorts of comic books. I'm a, I'm a comic book buyer and seller collector. As far as books go, um, obviously you always got to say the Bible. I lo love me some Bible, but <laughs> Because, and I'm going to admit it, um, because I don't understand everything that I'm reading, 
Um, some books that I love are anything by Max Lucado. And so Max Lucado, I think, has a gift from God to be able to read the Bible, digest it, and then put it back out in stories and a way to tell, um, to get the point across in almost like layman's terms. So any Max Lucado book, I love, love reading those. Um, I like biographies and I like, I like music biographies, um, you know, like the Johnny Cash book, Motley Crue book. Um, I just recently read the, uh, no effects, you know, um, the, the, the book that no effects put out. Um, and then one that is, is, I know it's going to sound corny and if you're like a librarian dude, you probably know good classics, but one that is close to my heart because our whole family likes it. And it's kind of like one of those things, like if your whole family is into star Wars, your whole family's into Harry Potter or something. One thing that my family loves is the hunger games. And so those books, I enjoyed reading those books when they came out and and then my daughters read those books and they loved them. And then the movies came out and, you know, about three times a year, usually, well, about four times a year, about every season, we'll do like a weekend binge where we'll like, we'll watch all the Hunger Game movies. And then in doing so, um, in because I'm a comic collector, um, I found that I wanted to, I started looking at, at books and like first edition print books, you know, so like Casino Royale and things like that, that they're like huge money. And like the first Harry Potter, the first printing of the first book of Harry Potter, like those are all like super expensive books. And so I got the, um, the first prints of all the like Hunger Games and, you know, um, uh, Catching Fire and Mocking Jay. So those are like books that I made sure that I went out and got the first print, first edition, uh, you know, hardcover of those books, just because our, our family likes those so much. So you talked about comic books, and I knew that you were a comic book fan because you've talked about it some on Pickle and Boot Shop. Yeah. So um, how, how'd you get into comics? And like, you know, I think everyone that likes comics has like a few, you know, characters that they're especially connected to. So what what are what are uh, your favorite characters that you you gotta get all the time? Um, what got me into comics is my dad. My dad one day, like I I never saw him read a comic book, but my dad wasn't around a whole lot. He worked his butt off, and and he he had his his personal stuff that he was working on, and so like one day I remember just like being in my front yard. My dad came home out of the blue, and was like you want to go get some comic books <laughs> just completely out of left field. And just because it was time that I could spend with my dad, I was like, yeah. So got in the car. We drove out to this, this comic book store. I didn't have a clue what to get. So my dad just kind of started pulling comics out. He's like, do you like the incredible Hulk? I'm like, yeah. So he got me some Hulk. He got me some captain America, uh, things like that. So, that kind of got me hooked. He got me some X-Men. Oh, he kind of got me, he got me Hulk and Captain America. And then I kind of got hooked on them. So I started going to the comic book shop closer to my house by myself or with my like neighbors around the neighborhood. And then that's where I kind of got, I got into like, um, the X-Men. I got into Spawn or like Spawn had like come out. And so I started getting into like kind of that stuff on my own. 
I'm going to be honest with you. I never really found a comic book character that I like really, really, really was just like all in on until, until I started reading about like Venom, like Venom kind of became the first, uh, comic book guy that that I really enjoyed because he was that anti you know that that anti-hero and so I kind of look at Venom like how I look at myself like 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 I'm a Christian dude like I love the Lord when I die I'm going to heaven but I I definitely got dirty wings you know like my my halo's definitely a little tarnished and so it's like the same thing with like Venom he's this you know he's he does bad stuff but he does bad stuff to try and help people. And so um, I think the more I kind of read Venom arcs and, and stuff like that, I, I enjoy him as a character more. Did you like the movie? I did like the movie. When I first saw it, I didn't. And then years went by and I was like, you know what? I'll watch it again. And I, I liked it a lot more the, the next time I saw it, which then, you know, I, I watched it again and again. So now I've probably seen it 10 times and I do like the movie. I'm excited for, uh, you know, uh, the next one coming out with carnage. So what is it? Let there be carnage or something. Yeah. So that'll be a good one. But yeah, those are like the Hulk and venom are probably the, the, the characters that I'm drawn to most. Right on. Well, Man, I uh, I really appreciate the time hanging out and uh, getting to ask you questions and and uh, you know hear your side of the story on on things that you've you know you, what it was like to be in the insiders and and uh, I, I want to encourage everyone to go check out the pickle and boot shop um, and uh, I know I've been really enjoying it uh, and and listening to it and and I uh, can't wait to hear more episodes and uh, yeah man thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Good luck with your podcast and all your interviews in the future and all that stuff. I appreciate it. Absolutely, man. Thanks. That's it for this week's podcast, but I hope you'll come back and check out the next podcast as I continue to interview the guests, both uh, ska guests and literary guests that have inspired me and gotten me more and more into the scene. Until then, thanks for hanging out here with the Rudy Librarian.